pray. Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray that we can recognize the gravity of reading your word and that we can appreciate the, um, the uh, unspeakable riches that we have in gathering corporately and having life among us in the person and work and, um, of Christ and in the presence of the Holy Spirit among us and in us. Lord, I pray that we can recognize that there's nothing mundane and routine about gathering weekly, but that we gather to dine and feast on a word that changes us and makes us more like Christ. Lord, I pray that in a, as, as a result of this time that we spend together, that we are more captivated with Christ, that we're more satisfied with His work, that we are growing downward in humiliation as we see ourselves uh, for who and what we really are, and that we're growing upward in adoration for the person and work of Christ. Lord, I confess that that is a divine work, and I know and I'm thankful that it's not something that I can achieve. And I pray that you will speak this morning in spite of Ben McGraw. I pray that you will move me out of the way. I pray that you will move each of us, our cares and concerns, out of the way, and that our lives can be laid bare and available. Lord, please guard us from the routine and mundane. Quicken us to the gravity of engaging the truth. Lord, we also want to pray this morning, I'm going to pray for uh, Bible Missionary Church and uh, Mark Mullen as a pastor. I want to pray for his marriage and his family, Lord. I pray that they are rich um, and healthy. I pray that his walk with you is engaging and that he's captivated with Christ and growing more satisfied with his work. I pray that he's digging into the word daily. I pray that his leadership of his church gives him opportunity and ability to focus on walking with you and pastoring, Lord, I pray that he is uh, effective as he's begin, maybe even beginning to preach at this very moment. I pray that he is available, that he's out of the way, and that you'll speak in and through him to a church and engage your people. I pray that as a result of that, that they will um, be changed as well. I pray that, Lord, if you give us an opportunity to have a tangible partnership with this church, um, that you'll show us how to do that. Lord, if, even if it's not tangible and if it's something that we don't see this side of eternity, we pray that we'll find ourselves in agreement with them and not in competition. We pray that we'll see ourselves on the same team, the same board, the same call, the same commission, the same sweet empty tomb, and that we see ourselves as brothers and sisters with the Christians in this community. Lord, that seems, um, seems like a big prayer. We trust that you're a big God. We turn this time over to you. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. I want to take just a moment as we begin this morning to give you kind of a bird's eye view of where we've been and where we are. This is for the benefit of those who uh, have been out, in and out, maybe the last few weeks or those who are visiting church for the first time, Cross Point. Maybe you've been kind of in and out cross point looking for a new church home. I want to give you just the benefit of giving you a sense of where we've been. We've been in the book of John for the last couple of years. And we've been there. Uh, we began with the Ten Commandments a few years ago when Crosspoint began. It felt like if it was good enough to 
for God to start with, it'd be good enough for a new church to start with. And that's what we did. We, we dug into the Ten Commandments and we recognized that all of us were in the same boat together, that we were hopeless and helpless before the law, that every single one of us had transgressed in some part of the law, so we were all guilty. So we then took the, the course of a passage in Galatians that tells us that the law is a tutor that leads us to Christ. So we let that law be that tutor that led us Christward. And then we climbed in the book of John a book that was written, John wrote the book, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we may have life in his name. That's why he wrote the book. We've been in there the last couple years. One of the cool things about the book of John is it's often referred to as a book of signs. The reason that is is because John takes seven, what he calls signs, they're actually miracles, and he tells their story. And it begins with the wedding at Cana, turning the water to wine, and it goes through seven, and we are seven different signs. And we've been looking these last few months in John chapter 11 at the last sign where he calls forth a man that had been dead four days from death to life. One of the sweet things about this book of signs is that these signs, they have a surface meaning and a surface impact where he turns water to wine, and everybody's happy, cool, hey, that's great. But then there's also a deeper meaning, where Christ demonstrates that what he offers is as different as water and wine, and not just any old cheap sherry cooking wine, but fine wine, the kind of wine where the hosts are marveling, like, where did this come from? And each of the signs have a deeper, richer meaning, and we can bathe in the symbolism and bathe in the story. So these last few weeks, we've been bathing in John chapter 11, the last sign where he calls forth Lazarus, who was a friend of his. He knew Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, had a relationship with them, and um, he calls forth Lazarus from death to life. What happened is Lazarus got sick. You get the sense that Lazarus may have been a young man by the way everybody grieved and mourned. It just kind of seemed to be a little excessive. For four days later, for everybody to be still weeping and mourning if he was a, an old man that had lived a full life. Mary and Martha, they actually, when, it, when Lazarus began to get sick, they called for Jesus. And Jesus actually said, ah, you know, that's good to know. I'm glad to hear he's, he's dying. I think I'm going to go ahead and let him die. He didn't say that, but in the way that he acted and how he responded, he waited before he went to Bethany to Lazarus's side to let Lazarus die so that he might be glorified. A beautiful picture that God allows terrible things so that he can be glorified through those terrible things. He's not caught unaware when Lazarus dies. He's still on his throne. He let, let Lazarus die, and then he shows up four days after Lazarus is dead. He's been in the tomb. We don't know how many days. He may have gone in the tomb that very day that he died, but he's probably been in the tomb at least three days. And he shows up, and um, he uh, visits with Mary and Martha a little bit. And both of them kind of respond the same way. If only you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And uh, Jesus encourages them to realize that if they would only believe, that they would see his glory. And then he has them remove the stone. And it's at that point where Martha said, Now, Jesus, Lazarus has been dead for a few days now, and homeboy's going to stink. I mean, he's, anybody's worn a cast on their arm for a period of time. You take that cast off, off of a living arm, and you know how bad it stinks, just the surface layer of uh, decomposition. You take a whole body, four days worth of death, and that 
boy stunk. Okay, so Jesus has him remove the stone. Martha says, oh, we shouldn't do that. And he says, you go ahead and do it. I did not tell you that you were going to see the glory of God if you'd only believe. So they remove the stone. Jesus prays publicly, not for his benefit, but for, for those, uh, those around him, they have the benefit of seeing that he has a walking, living, abiding relationship with his father. He prays for a healing, and then he calls Lazarus forth. Lazarus comes out, hands bound, hands, head, body bound in grave cloths. And he tells everyone, unbind him and let him go. The thing that we've enjoyed about the last few weeks, we've gone on an eight or nine week journey of appreciating the symbolism of his stench. We say, wait a second, there's some imagery in there of his stench, of his four days worth of death, the resultant decomposition, of his uh, occupation in a sealed tomb, and his inability to do anything about those sort of things that beautifully picture and symbolize our situation apart from Christ, that we too stinketh, and that we too are hopeless and helpless, dead in our trespasses and sins. We too are sealed in a tomb. But Jesus demonstrates that there's no rock too big, there's no obstacle too great that he even calls beyond death and calls Lazarus forth to life. What a beautiful picture through these seven signs that Jesus is the Christ that by believing you may have life in his name. What we've done the last few weeks though is we've considered our stench and what we've realized is that we cannot appreciate the riches that we have in Christ until we face acknowledge address and even yes sniff our poverty and stench and foulness apart from him so we've been on an eight or nine week journey and I encourage you that if you were not here for parts of that or all of that those are all online there's kind of a developing story there I would encourage you to listen to those. But last week, we considered that the formerly smelly, those who have heard that effectual call of come forth, are the formerly smelly, that now we're the sweet aroma of Christ to God. Not because of anything we've done, but because we're bathed in the blood of Christ, just like we sang about this morning. But the formerly smelly, we considered last week, the formerly smelly come as little children growing downward. The little children are dependent and needy, and they're insecure. And yet in Christ, we can find complete security, and we can find complete satisfaction for our need. But that we don't come growing up in Christ, we actually grow down in Christ more and more and more, like little dependent, needy, helpless and hopeless little children. We also considered that the formerly smelly come unfinished in beating their chests. We considered a parable where Two people prayed to God, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. And the Pharisee looks toward heaven and, thank you, God, that I pay my tithes and all that good stuff. Thanks that I'm not like that sorry dude right over there, that tax collector. And the tax collector is beating his chest before God and saying, wretched, pitiful, foul person that I am. Who went away forgiven? The guy that recognized his stench. Third, we considered that the formerly smelly come with Christ, the suffering servant, who himself, we also read from this morning, was little in his own eyes. He embodied it. He modeled it. That he didn't even, although being God, did not even consider himself to be equal with God, a quality with God to even be grasped. That if our Savior modeled it, then his people, the formerly smelly, will model it 
and live that way too. What we considered last week is that if we're small in our own eyes, we can take and handle the worst insults. We can take and handle the greatest trials, the most harmful slander, the most hurtful actions, the most subversive behavior, the least loving of words, the least thoughtful of deeds. If we're small in our own eyes and we see, see ourselves as truly stinky, smelly, vile, foul, odious, wicked, and undeserving, then and only then from that deep, deep well will we see Christ as everything. This week, I want to introduce you to two more characteristics of the formerly smelly. This will be our last week in the Hestinka series. Next week, I actually have a treat for you. We're going to kind of tie this whole series together, and um, I'm going to share something with you that will be a treat for you. That's all I'm going to tell you. But this week, we're going to look at two things. The last two observations that I've made, and I bet in the last few weeks, if you've been paying attention, you've made some more observations that I haven't even preached on. But this morning, we're going to look at one observation that has a horizontal impact and one that has a vertical impact. Let's start with the horizontal first. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. This morning, in looking at these two characteristics of the formerly smelly, these two final characteristics, both of them are from parables about money. That, well, they're not about money, but they use money to illustrate and to teach. So we'll find that money will come in handy. We'll have to do a little bit, a little bit of conversion, currency conversion, but uh, we'll climb into these stories and see what the Lord teaches us. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, this is to Christ, Lord, how often shall I forgive... Uh, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, now Jesus launches off into a parable. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Don't miss the imagery. Appreciate this king here who wants to settle some debts owed toward him from his slaves. Verse 24. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now I'm going to introduce you to a conversion rate we're going to use this morning. There's a unit of currency in this time. It's called the denarius, or multiple versions, denarii. A denarius was about one day's wage for a Roman laborer. What I've done is I've Americanized this and actually even Greenvilleized this. Okay? And what I've done, and also I've made it easy for me to figure it. A day's wage, I'm estimating, for most, well, an average day's wage may be $100. That sounds pretty pitiful, doesn't it? $100. But if you multiply that out, that's $30, $36,500 a year. Okay? So let's imagine that our day's wage would be $100, and let's imagine that that equals to one denarius. Now, a talent equaled $6,000 denarii. So that would be 6,000 days wage. Now what I did to figure out what this 10,000 talents equated to is I pulled out my handy dandy calculator and I figured out that this equated, if we tried to greenvilleize this, to six billion dollars. Hear that amount. Six billion 
dollars. It's hard for us to imagine that. It's got a lot of zeros after it, right after that six. When he had begun to settle with this account, it's hard to imagine a king loaning one of his slaves six billion dollars, but it's a story. It's a parable. So Jesus is telling this story. One who owed him 10,000 talents, six billion dollars, was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, that's great to hear, isn't it? That sounds familiar. His Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him. That too sounds familiar. His comment in there about not having the means to repay, if we can climb into this in a spiritual sense, do we have the means to repay for our $6 billion worth of sin toward our living God, holy God, creator? No, we don't have a means to repay, but we, this, his actions here seem so familiar to me. He falls to the ground, prostrated himself before him. It sounds a lot like repentance, and it sounds like answerability, what we're about to hear next, saying, have patience with me, I will repay you everything. That sounds like answerability. I want to reconcile with you, king. And then the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. See, doesn't that sound familiar? It sounds beautiful. It sounds like the journey of faith beginning for most of us. Okay, but here's where the story changes in verse 28. But that slave, that $6 billion debt forgiven slave, went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii in Greenville amount, money terms. That's about $10,000. Okay, $6 billion, $10,000. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. Again, it sounds like repentance and answerability. Okay, cool. We're heading the right direction, except for the choking part. That just doesn't seem right. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. Now, this guy demonstrates, this first slave demonstrates that he's pretty plain sorry. In verse 31, so when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their lord, the king, all that had happened. Then the king summoned him, his lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt, six billion dollars worth of debt, because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. This next observation of the formerly smelly that I'll share with you this morning is that the formerly smelly forgive long and deep. I thought of as many descriptors as I possibly could. Radically, consistently, consistently. drastically, but really I just kind of landed on long and deep. They just sound like thoroughness, and it sounds like consistency. It sounds like they embodied everything. And here's where what I considered. Considering what we've been forgiven, $6 billion worth of sinfulness that we too can't repay, how in the world can we withhold forgiveness, $10,000 worth, to our brother, our sister, It's in view of the stench of our tomb and the wretchedness and our sinfulness that we find the fuel. And hear that definite article, the fuel. This is the only means for true forgiveness right here, that you've been forgiven. You find the means, 
You find the model in the person of Christ. You find the fuel for long and deep radical forgiveness toward others. Now, here's where I'm going to really raise the bar. However vile, however terrible the sin that has been done toward you. And as I wrote this, I thought, man, you read through the newspaper and you go, wait a second, how can I possibly say this? However vile, however terrible someone has wronged you, even the most unimaginable sin that unfortunately is all through our newspapers, all over our newscasts, the most unimaginable things that could possibly happen that man does to each other is chump change compared to the bucks, the big bucks that we owe our Lord. Whatever the most terrible, vile, wicked thing you could possibly think that anyone could do to another person, it is chump change compared to what we have done to a holy God. These last few weeks, we've built, we've built what, what I'm calling a stench catalog. A stench catalog that's true of all of us. Here are a few of the things that we've discovered that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We've also discovered that no one is righteous. No, not one. We discovered that all have sinned and all fall short of God's glory. We've also considered that we are born in iniquity, conceived in sin, even from the very outset. We've also considered that our heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. When you appreciate our wickedness and vileness and foulness before a holy God, then you can consider every other sin against you as chump change. Is there a transgression that's too great for you to forgive? I realize as I ask that question that some people in this, maybe in this very room, have been exposed to some terrible, terrible, unspeakable, unthinkable things. But there's none too terrible for God to forgive. There's no sin too bad. There's no wickedness or evil too terrible for God to forgive. There's no sin too great that His blood can't cover. So there's no wrong committed against you, however vile, that's too great for you to forgive. You can only offer complete forgiveness to another when you see your $6 billion stench that was forgiven by another. Some of y'all owe someone an apology for one thing or another. Probably most of us, if we're truly um, self-examining, we may realize that we owe somebody else some forgiveness in light of the stench of our tomb that we've been forgiven of. Second thing we'll consider this morning is in Luke chapter 7. Go ahead and turn there. Luke chapter 7. <clears throat> the first one, observation this morning, was the formerly smelly forgive long and deep. The second one is the formerly smelly love extravagantly. It's a big word. You know what it means, extravagantly. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting Jesus to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. 
Let me tell you a little bit about a public banquet, which is exactly what this was. He's not having Jesus over to dinner, a little private affair. Banquets in this day, which is what this was, was a very public event. There were invited guests, and then there were lots of uninvited guests that would show up. And what they would do is they would sit around the wall, around the banquet table, and they would observe and spectate and listen. And they would focus on the invited or focused or primary honored guest. So in this case, Jesus is invited to a banquet at the home of a Pharisee. Verse 37. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Let's talk about who this woman was or what she must have been. We don't have a whole lot of details, but we know that if a woman has a reputation as a sinner in a town, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure, at least in this day and age, that she was likely a prostitute. We don't know that for sure. She may have had some other real public overt sin, but she was likely a prostitute, and she shows up as one of the uninvited guests at this Pharisee's banquet. Now, these guys are reclining around the table. You need to understand the setting. We've already kind of climbed into their banquet room. You see a big banquet table with guests, honored guests and hosts sitting there at the banquet table, lots of people sitting around the outside. And I realize that this banquet table was not a table as you and I know it. It was a a table that was probably only a couple feet high. And that's why people would recline around the table. They would actually lean back on their left arm, and they would eat with their right hand, and they would bend their knees and put their feet back behind them because their feet were dirty and feet were not considered all that clean anyway. So they put their feet back behind them. So appreciate that setting that Christ and the guests are likely reclining around this little short table as they dined. And this woman, this uninvited guest, comes up behind Jesus with his feet back behind. And she comes up to something that probably would not be considered real clean. Like I said, somebody's feet. They wore sandals in those days. You can imagine what your feet would look and smell like if you wore sandals everywhere you went and you didn't wash all that frequently. And she comes up behind his feet, his dirty feet, and she wets them with her tears. She wipes her, his feet with her hair. And she kisses them with her lips. Now, verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. What? sort of woman. You hear this guy, he's thinking to himself, this unsavory sort, like she's almost unhuman, inhuman, like she's lesser, a lesser form of life compared to this Pharisee. Last week we looked at the parable that I already mentioned this morning of the Pharisee and the tax collector standing together, and the Pharisee's main assessment of his righteousness was that at least I'm better than that dude. That sounds pretty familiar, and he looked on others with contempt. This Pharisee looked on this sinful woman with contempt. It's important to realize, too, that she was still a prostitute when she showed up. There's a word in here that could give you a sense in verse 37 that this was a past tense event. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. It's not a past tense was. It's just saying that she was currently a sinner, just like she was currently a woman. She shows up in her sinfulness, just hearing that Christ was there. And this Pharisee looks on her with contempt. 
verse 40. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Let me convert those numerical amounts. Just the same uh, dollar figure currency converter that we used earlier, about 100 bucks a day. We're looking at two figures there, about $50,000 and about $5,000. So we could kind of estimate, you know, this is a, not a real tidy estimate, maybe the balance of your mortgage and maybe the balance of your car payment or your car loan, okay? Two debtors, one owed 50000 one owed 5000 When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. That makes total sense. Simon doesn't have to be a rocket scientist there to understand that. If someone forgave your mortgage or someone forgave your car note, I, th- I bet you'd be more appreciative of the mortgage note. Verse 44. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman, Simon? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Let me expose this meaning to you. Turn to John chapter 9. Keep your finger in Luke because we'll come back to it. Turn to John chapter 9. This is a passage that we've studied just a few months ago. It's in a chapter about a guy that was blind, that Jesus finds, that Jesus heals physically. The guy runs off testifying about Jesus everywhere he can. He's even called before a council of Pharisees and he testifies, hey, this guy healed me. And then later Jesus finds him again and heals him uh, not only of his physical blindness, but of his spiritual blindness. He had just been put out of the synagogue. They mad at him just for getting healed, I guess. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out of the synagogue and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. The word there is he fell on his face worshipping Christ. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world. This is going to help you understand this Pharisee that we just met. For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see, like you blind dude, excuse me, formerly blind dude, who now see, who now worship on your face, so that those who do not see may see. And that those who see, I put quotation marks around that see, may become blind. Those who think you see, those who think you got it going on, those who think are righteous. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we're not blind too, are we? You're not saying that we're unrighteous, certainly. You're not saying that we're in league with tax collectors and prostitutes, are you? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind like this guy, you would now see because you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. See, there he's explaining what we're seeing over here in Luke chapter 8 in this guy. This guy thinks 
he sees. Turn to Matthew chapter 9. Keep your finger in Luke. Matthew chapter 9, verse 12. You've got about four passages that are all tied together here. There's a truth that's so important, that's so critical to recognizing the stench of our tomb and the beauty of that, that there's forgiveness on the other side of that. Listen to chapter 9, verse 12. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Those who are hopeless and helpless. Those who recognize by grace their catalog of stench. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous or the supposed seeing or the Pharisees who think they had it going on, but for sinners who were blind and hopeless and helpless and lame. See, the Pharisees didn't see themselves as blind and sick because they compared themselves to others. Listen to that. They didn't see themselves in league with tax collectors. They didn't see themselves in company with prostitutes because they compared themselves to others. And here's the reality, folks. You can always find somebody more sorry than yourself. You can always find somebody that's more wicked and more vile than yourself. And if your righteousness is built on that, that's no righteousness at all. That's what the Pharisees were guilty of. Jesus says to this woman in verse 48, back in Luke chapter 8, he says, your sins have been forgiven. And she goes away forgiven, just like the tax collector that we met last week, who was contrite, who was ashamed, who was brokenhearted, who recognized his stench. Here's what I want you to consider. If your love Christward is lukewarm, it's because you've lost sight or you've never seen in the first place what you've been delivered from. If your love for Christ is mediocre, it's because you've been forgiven little in that you think you're seeing. You think you're righteous because you're comparing yourself horizontally. If your love toward Christ is lukewarm or mediocre, you haven't looked long and hard at your wretchedness. This woman, this prostitute, sinful woman, whatever she was, had a sort of love that is characteristic of the formerly smelly. Look at some of the things it was. It was public. It was at an open banquet. Man, imagine the the fear she must have had just going to a Pharisee's home, being a prostitute. Like I said, she's still a prostitute. The tense there, and it's translated was, in the original language, it's an imperfect tense, meaning that it's still going on. She was a prostitute as she showed up to that home. Imagine the barrier and the obstacle knowing that this is a public place. Yet she shows up publicly to an open open banquet. Her love was public. Her love was expensive. She showed up with something in hand. She's not going to give something to God, something that didn't, didn't cost her anything. She shows up with an alabaster jar of perfume, far more expensive than the oil that he should have been anointed with, olive oil. She shows up with an expensive alabaster jar. Her love was expensive, and it's poured on dirty feet. Her love was public. Her love was expensive. Her love was lavish. She let her hair down. Let me tell you something, folks. This was racy. 
This was like going around half-dressed for a woman to let her hair down. But for her, there was no boundaries. Her love was lavish. It was a no-limits sort of love. Her love was liquid. Her love had tears. And those tears came from knowing what she was being forgiven from. She had an awareness of her sin. That's what fueled those tears. She was, it was fueled by forgiveness. Let me interject a side truth that's important and must be introduced right here. Because some people may be hearing these this morning, this story, this picture of this woman who showed up as a prostitute and think, okay, man, preach it, Ben. This, this actually relieves me of the sin that I'm, I'm not reckoning with right now. Because I may be showing up to Jesus just like she did currently as a sinner. But let me encourage you to realize that we must suppose that those were tears of repentance not just tears of remorse, because forgiveness is only on the other side of forgiveness or repentance, not remorse. So if you have sin in your life that is not reckoned with, if you have some situation in your life, you think, I'm not going to deal with that, then you're showing up unrepentant. You may even have some tears, but they're tears of remorse rather than tears of repentance. But hers were tears of remorse. Repentance because she was forgiven on the other side of it. We can trust that she left that banquet room that day, leaving her life forever. Leaving her former life forever. Those tears that she cried that day, those tears showed us that she despised her former life. So don't let this excuse current, ongoing sin that's in your life. She despised her former life. She wasn't looking to him to excuse it so she could go right back to it or so she could even dabble in it. Life would be different forever. I want to ask you to consider this. I want to ask you to consider this sinful woman, this, sinner's woman, this sinful woman, whatever she was, the character of her love, that it was public, that it was expensive, that it was lavish, that it was liquid. And I want to ask you, how do you consider how would you characterize your love for Christ? Think on that for a minute. How would you characterize your love for Christ? Would you call it extravagant? Or would you call it small? But there, there's some there, but it's not real big. I want to ask you to consider the next question. Is your debt that you owe a holy God small or great? That's the real question. Is the debt that you owe a holy God, small or great, how you feel about Christ, how desperately you love Christ, is dependent on how you feel and recognize and reckon with yourself. Love for your Savior is proportional, corresponding to, and in direct correlation to your recognized need for a Savior. If you think you got it going on, if you think you're a pretty good guy, your motives are mostly pure, you're pretty seeing, you're pretty righteous, if you don't think yourself vile, wicked, sinful, and foul, then you haven't smelled the stench of your tomb and you can't love the Lord very much. Period. That's why we've bathed in this for the last eight or nine weeks, in the stench of our tomb, because that's where love for Christ comes from. If you think you got it going on apart from Christ... You can't love Christ. 
you might appreciate your insurance agent. You might think that you've bought a non-hell policy, but you don't love him. You aren't in fellowship with him. You may have an awareness of him, but when you appreciate the stench of your tomb, your catalog of stench, 